My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Dr. Florence Chu. Florence is the HDR Learning Advisor for Social Science at Macquarie University and earned her PhD in Sociology at the University of New South Wales. She has published on a broad range of topics including social theory, educational philosophy, the sociology of neuroscience, new materialist feminism and human-animal relations. As an HDR Learning Advisor, Florence is also interested in forging supportive mentoring relationships with research candidates in ways that enhance their research experience and sense of belonging and community at the university. Her research training curriculum includes workshops and courses on developing sustainable writing practices, learning to work with critical feedback and applying creative interdisciplinary thinking to research questions. As a researcher with specialisations in medical sociology, feminist theory and science and technology studies, Florence is particularly interested in how empirical data from the life sciences can be used to foster conceptual innovation in the humanities and social sciences. Thanks for joining me, Florence. Thanks for having me, Sally. Florence, as one of my colleagues in the HDR Support and Development Unit, we have had many conversations over the last few years. Yeah, we have. (laughs) (laughs) And they're always so so good. I really enjoy talking to you. Some of those have been about finding better ways of supporting HDR candidates and to help them to gain the skills to build interesting careers. Mm -hmm. And that is my stock in trade, but it's certainly an interest of yours as well. Mm and that you have that big picture view. And of course, you and your colleagues in the HDR Learning Skills team all have PhDs. When you enrolled in the PhD, did you imagine you would be doing what you're doing? No, I think absolutely not. Not at the time. Um, I would probably say something quite different now, looking back. Well, at the time when I enrolled in a PhD, I think like many other research candidates, I didn't really have a sense of an alternative. So, for example, my supervisor, she's one of the most prominent feminist theorists in Australia. And so I did my PhD under her wing. And I think all I wanted to do as a student was to be like her, to be her in a sense. You know, I wanted to travel for conferences, to be invited to speak at international conferences, to write, to research, to publish. And I think the model that was available for me then was faculty, you know, a a discipline-specific model, which was like, if you did your PhD in sociology, then your only route was to be a sociologist inside a faculty that would hire you. So I wasn't aware of an alternative way of building a career or being an academic that was somehow different. And I think, obviously, over the years that I've spent at Macquarie, I've, you know, kind of figured out a very different way of what it might mean to be an academic based on what I've learned through my PhD. But if you ask me then, like, you know, when I was doing my PhD, I probably didn't really have a other sense of what it what that might be. And so you talked about what you were thinking when you were doing the PhD, mm. and I think that's really common. Uh, mm. And I think what I really like hearing from you there is that you have a an exploratory mindset and that you've adjusted and shifted your thinking as you've gone. So when you thought about enrolling in a PhD, what led you to that? Mm. Maybe the best way to think about this for me now, sort of looking in hindsight, was that open-mindedness was a trait that my supervisor at the time really taught me and really wanted to, you know, for, there were a few of us doing our PhDs under her. And because she was an interdisciplinary scholar, and even though we were, you know, kind of situated in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology, and this was at UNSW, 
a lot of the work that we do fell under an area called science and technology studies. And so that area of research is a deeply interdisciplinary one in that the, the sorts of things that we were looking at were things like, you know, how do the kinds of scientific research and scientific progress that are available today, how are they informed by larger you know, cultural, social shifts and historical contexts, and how would these contexts in turn inform the sorts of science and scientific research that we pursued. So it was a sociological question, and that was sort of my interest. And a lot of the, the work that I did for my PhD was in the space of, you know, the rise of the neurosciences, and in particular, brain plasticity. And so, in a, you know, as a, as a larger sociological question, I was interested in why there was so much focused on, you know, lifelong learning and the brain that changes itself. It sort of suddenly hit a more public space of conversation where people were interested in how they could change their brains or how they could retrain and rewire themselves to you know, become better or, you know, to, to change different kinds of habits and behaviours. So there was a larger question that I was interested in. But I think now with hindsight, I realised that I was always interested in the subject of learning. And I think, you know, in some ways, even though I fumbled through and found myself into this position, it's about as apt as it could be <laughs> now thinking back. And I've always been interested in what's, what motivates people. Um, and we've had conversations prior to this about, about that subject. And, you know, what's the turning point for someone to go, right, like, this is not working, I'm going to change. It could be a career change, um, and as you well know. It could be something else in my work habits and my work routines. And so, you know, from, from that sort of sense of being open-minded to pursue you know, questions that are, that cut across very different disciplines. I think that kind of way of thinking and way of working has really, you know, s stood me in good stead here, like in my role at Macquarie as, as a learning advisor, where I've started to, in my work, really encourage the students that I mentor to think kind of, to, to have a sense of perspective that there's no one right way to do anything, and that includes learning particular disciplinary content, but it also includes, you know, what a career might look like and what, what might be other possibilities that will be closed off if you already assume that there's only one way to do something. Yes, and in fact, that goes completely against research. Yeah, that's exactly it, really? right. Yeah. Because having a research mindset is a discovery mindset, yeah. and yet sometimes people get in this thinking process that I'm doing this a PhD therefore mm. my, an academic path is mm. is the only one and as you said a faculty based yeah. academic path and then they talk about at universities the alt ac yeah know, that's so right there's yeah. people who have, who have PhDs in library libraries yeah. there's people in the careers service that have yep. PhDs. There's people everywhere in the senior administration of the university that have PhDs. That's right. So even within a university, there are so many diverse yeah. pathways that people yeah. with a PhD can take. Yeah. So it is that open-mindedness, and it's very much like the Carol Dweck work yep. on growth mindset, yep. really. Yeah, yeah. You've talked a little bit about your PhD experience, and it sounds pretty positive for you. Of course, there's always challenges, though, and now mm. that you've gotten through it and you're at the other end and you have some years in between, that time it probably seems okay but can you put yourself back there and think about what that was like when you were experiencing those challenges and how you then relate to the PhD mm. and MRes students that you're seeing mm. now well I guess 
The first thing I would say is I think I'm a bit of a recovering perfectionist um, in that perfectionism and all the things that go with that around like imposter syndrome and, you know, things that people talk about and often comes up in my consultations with students now. I think I continue to sort of work with that um, in my own sort of research and, you know, teaching practice. But I suppose one of the things that I remember most clearly that I've always struggled with, especially during my PhD, was around receiving critical feedback. And then feedback is, you know, peer review is sort of the gold standard of academia, really. And so you get, you know, you don't necessarily get trained in giving and receiving feedback. In fact, you don't as a PhD student. You know, if you're a student on the receiving end of critical feedback a lot, and it certainly depends on who's giving you that feedback and then whether that allows you to receive it gracefully or be really angry or feel rejected. And so a lot of emotions come out, I think, from that process of negotiating your work and you know what that might say about you. Often it's not really about you, but it feels like that at the moment of receiving feedback. And I remember, you know, my PhD days, like my supervisor, she's, you know, she's wonderful, she's really sharp, she's brilliant as a scholar, but she's also really, really strict. And so, you know, I would spend months kind of hiding from her. <laughs> I think that's sort of a quite a common phenomenon as I, you know, as I see students these days. And I'd be like, I'm, I'm not ready to give up this draft yet. I've spent a lot of time writing it. I actually really need some feedback. That's what I need. And so in my head, I think I do need it. But then there's another voice that tells me it's not good enough yet because you're not good enough yet to submit this piece of work to your supervisor. What would she be thinking? Like she expects only the best. And so I think that kind of talk pattern in my head it's sort of a funny thing because it's very paradoxical. On one hand, it obviously dr drove me to want to get better at whatever I was doing and to really have quite high expectations of myself. But on the other hand, it was also crippling in many ways, certainly emotionally, but also in a sense in which I just felt like I was never enough or never ready to you know, hand anything over, even though you know, theoretically I knew it was all a work in progress. So I think in terms of giving and receiving feedback, that's one of the things that I've really tried to work on with the students that I see. And in the writing courses that I do, for example, I often have weeks where we only just focus on just experimenting with ways of giving and receiving feedback. So for example, I run lots of writing groups with PhD and MRES candidates. Uh, we might have groups of four or five where we sit together and we meet fortnightly and everyone volunteers a draft. You know, and, and so in those settings, everyone gets an opportunity to be on the re receiving end of feedback, but also be on the end where you're learning what's, what's a good way of giving feedback especially around like critical feedback. You know, that you could say that there are lots of things wrong with the draft, but you probably won't want to say it that way because you've been on the receiving end of that sort of feedback and you know that it doesn't work. It doesn't make you any more receptive at actually using that feedback in improving your work. So I think the delivery in which we think of how to give and receive feedback is something that I've been trying to work on in my own teaching and certainly informed a lot of my teaching philosophy. And I think as a whole is something that we could probably do more of as, as an institution um, and in, in, this, in the kinds of you know, support that we give and provide for students, yeah. No, that's great. And I know that you also have a real interest in failure mm -hmm. as a concept. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about that because you know, you're going to start your own yeah. podcast, which yeah. I'm excited to listen to, which is about failure. And you said to me, oh, I'm a bit concerned because it seems like it's a bit yeah. of an overused term and you know, people focusing on this. But of course, yours comes from a growth mindset. Mm. And so what you've just described, it probably is the catalyst for that podcast mm. in that you understand what it can be like to mm. be crippled by that fear 
feeling of failing and wanting to help other people go, well, here's some strategies, but not just from you, but from other yeah. people. So I'm going to turn that on you okay. and say, <laughs> what do you think of when you hear the word failure? I think of it, I think of failure as almost a physical sensation. Mm. And, you know, I will talk a little bit about this in my podcast, so stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I've increasingly come to think of failing almost with the physical sensation of falling. Mm. And it's really interesting because I had a look at the etymology of these two words and they share the same origin. I suppose in some ways it's no surprise. Um, Because when I think of the actual experience of failing, it does, you know, have this embodied sense of I'm falling over. I'm tripping, I'm stumbling, I don't know where I am in space, I don't know, you know, where to go. So there's almost a sense of a loss of direction. And I often associate that, you know, in my other life outside of when I'm not here in my day job, I, I am a yoga practitioner and I'm training to be a yoga sort of teacher. So I've had a yoga practice for almost 10 years. And one of the things that's really taught me a lot about how to fail in a well, if that could be even be a term, is how to fall over in my balance poses. And, and you know, my teacher might come to me, you know, over the years, I've, one of the things that, you know, it's sort of a, the marker of a seasoned yoga practitioner is a headstand. Mm. It's a balance pose. And, you know, you start as a beginner with a balance pose very close to the wall so you don't fall over and hurt yourself. But as you get more experienced, you know, you sort of start to inch your mat out from mm. near the wall and just start to learn to practice falling. And that's literally what I did, you know, in order to sort of feel the sensation of falling and go, oh, OK, that headstand failed, but that's OK. Like, you know, I'm still kind of on the ground <laughs> and I'll just come up and, and do it again. And so I think I try and, you know, sort of remember that and bring some of that spirit of my yoga practice into the kind of research space and into my kind of pedagogical space where I try and encourage where possible a safe space for people to practice, you know, metaphorically like falling Mm. um, in their work. And so this might be practicing some imperfection in the drafts that they, you know, hand in to me or to their peers and to just work kind of gradually at experiencing what that sensation is. Because I think one of the things that I learned like to, in my relationship with failure is that it, the more you avoid it, the more you run away from it, the more it haunts you. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you can't really get around it other than to like lean into it mm. and through it. I think this is sort of the motivation for my podcast. Mm. And, you know, it's sort of, I was inspired by our previous conversation you know, where I sort of like was a bit worried about, you know, is this sort of too overused? Like, you know, is it too trendy to talk about failure? But I think I really want to tap into people's experiences of failing. And I think that the more we talk about it, not necessarily, you know, as a linear narrative of like, these are the five things I failed and, and here I am like in a different place and a different time. And those stories are all really, you know, useful and, you know, they're, they're supportive for some people. But they still tend to have this linear narrative of, you know, I move from step A to step B, and it has this sense of if you just take these five steps, you'll be where, you know, you need to be. But I think my experience with failure has taught me that you never really know where you need to be if you don't pay attention to where you are in every moment of the way. Mm. And I think that would be how, you know, I kind of explain, like, my relationship with failure. Like, I, I learn how to fall. Some falls tend to be difficult, and, you know, impossible. Some falls teach me, oh, you know, if you just hold your balance in this way, like you might, you might just 
sustain your balance a bit longer. And so every moment of failing is, is in fact a creative one. Mm. It's a creation of something new that you hadn't learned either about yourself or about the conditions in which you work. And, and that, that's all you know, part, of, part of the process of learning and certainly part of the process of living. Mm. Now, I actually was just having a conversation with someone else about the transitional moments, mm. that, you, that you often have to build something mm. to a point and, and even if it fails, or you, you stop and review and go, this worked really well, that could have been better, and then that failed abysmally. <laughs> but I had to get to that point before I could move mm. to the next one. So it's that, and, and it's not linear, as you say. It's not no. climbing the ladder or the mountain. It is about always knowing that you need a different perspective. Yeah. And so you have to almost get there to that point to review, and then you can move to the next part, wherever that might be. Yeah. It might be something yeah. completely different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and th- I mean, that sense of openness to experience is, is difficult. I find it difficult even now, um, and I continue to sort of remind myself, you know, in difficult moments to stay open for as long as I can. And often we do these things with the clarity of hindsight, but it's so valuable when you go, that, that moment was a turning point, mm. um, and that mattered. So I try and sort of bring this into my teaching practice wherever I can. You've talked about what you do with the HDR candidates and Mm. obviously they learn a lot from you, but what do you feel that you learn from them along the way and even through their supervisors, what they might pass on to you or you directly talking to their supervisors? What do you think you learn? I think I learn that there are so many different ways to make a relationship work and a supervision relationship is like any other relationship. You know, it has its moments of intensity, it has its moments of intimacy, um, there are moments of distance, and then there are moments of emotional vulnerability. And I think, uh, you know, when I look around, a lot of the times when I see PhD candidates and MRS candidates, you know, they often talk about their supervisors, they often talk about the relationship they have. And, And some of the best stories I've heard in those kinds of relationships is when a relationship is able to be a nice, you know, what I might call holding space that is spacious enough to accommodate and allow for all kinds of experiences. And I think the PhD, even though it's an intellectual piece of work, nobody I know thinks of it as a purely intellectual (laughs) enterprise. It's got to have all of the things that, you know, makes a whole person a whole person, Mm. like uh, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, physically, because it requires a lot of stamina. So I think that along the way of, you know, since being at Macquarie and my fifth year now, Some of the most remarkable relationships that I've seen, my own relationship with students, but also informed by their relationship with their supervisors and how people learn to work together. I think some of the most remarkable ones have a lot to do with how we understand what a wholehearted person uh, is and, and how that becomes part of a wholehearted relationship. And I think that would be, you know, one of the greatest sort of learnings I've taken away. And I've certainly, you know, when I see supervision relationships that work, I also start to think about like how that might help me improve my own mentoring sort of capacity. And I, I, th- I suppose I occupy a fairly interesting space in a university because often students come to see me and I'm not their direct supervisor, but I certainly offer same similar sorts of mentoring 
that their supervisor might have. So I kind of am on the side, but I'm also in on like, you know, some of the more intimate details of, of their PhD or their research process. So I feel like I have, you know, increasingly a, a nice insider's perspective, but also someone on the outside where I'm able to observe and, you know, almost stand back a little and see what's working, what's not working, and how that might, you know, inform sort of the, the kinds of relationships we might build and the kinds of communities we might build across campus. Mm. And actually, it's interesting you use the word community because I thought really that's what you're part of mm. because there is obviously the supervisor is such a pivotal mm. position mm. in the PhD process and the MRes process. But it's the other people that really it's sort of who's in your community that yeah. can support you. And for uh, research candidates, that can be their family and friends, obviously. But also within the university, there might be a research librarian, yeah. HDR learning yeah. advisor yeah. like yourself. And all those people offer different perspectives and can help, particularly when you talked about that relationship, because yeah. like any relationship, you know, you, you could, you know, we all get angry with someone in our Yeah, you know, that's right. In yeah, our yeah, lives, where yeah, well, yeah. we might talk to a friend and then you might get perspective by talking to them and then you, you can see it differently. And really that's what you're offering as well, as well as these other people yeah. in their community that have that whole support network, which yeah. I think is really important. I'm sure you would yeah. think so too. I mean, I think one of the, the greatest things in my own PhD experience was that even though, you know, my supervisor was wonderful, you know, there, there were a lot of other people around that actually, like, with some hindsight, I realised they all remain really great friends of mine. You know, we sort of moved through... Uh, a, a collegial relationship to sort of like quite valuable friendships that I now know I will have for a long time to come. And many of them played sort of vital sort of roles when I was doing my PhD. And I think that that's sort of what I've learned and I hope to, you know, sort of be part of someone's, you know, kind of support network in that way while, while I'm here in whatever capacity I can. It does make your, your world larger. Mm. I think a PhD or any research degree can be and often feels very isolating because you're in your head a lot. Mm. And being able to, you know, reach out to different people for different needs, I think that's a skill that people need to learn, but also that's something that we need to make available as an institution, mm. Mm. yeah. That supervisors are aware of That's who, right. who's available to support yeah. their candidates too. And it's not just up to them yeah. and to know that sometimes they don't, as I've discovered. Yeah. And yeah. so it's really important to say, hey, did you know this is here? And yeah, they often yeah, will yeah. take advantage of that once they know it's yeah. there. So you've talked a bit about this, and I certainly know that you do make a major difference. Mm -hmm. but, but how do you feel you make a real difference in this role that you have? Well, I'm going to quote one of my students here who not so long ago introduced me to somebody else as being something between her therapist and personal trainer. And I remember like laughing and I was like, oh my goodness, how could you possibly say that? And then I was like, oh yeah, that, that kind of fits. Like I could see myself, you know, I think the difference that I make when I'm in an individual mentoring relationship but also sort of in a sort of group of students who come and see me or who I meet like in the writing sort of courses that I run I think I like to think that the difference I make is you know being in a position where I can see when someone needs a little bit of a push or a prodding like you know you sort of need to keep going but also where sometimes that's not what's useful that in fact, they're probably pushing themselves too hard. And I see a lot of candidates who, like, you know, they're like, I'm sitting in front of my computer for five hours a day, like, I haven't done anything, got anything done. And I'm like, well, actually, you need to relax. <laughs> you need to take a break and you need to slow down and find ways of resting and sort of attending to 
what will allow you to you know be a whole person mm. that you're not just you know a, a brain like necessary for the PhD work so I think that's sort of to, to offer a balanced perspective that's to answer your question about making a difference I try and keep things balanced mm. for, for my students. Yeah. Mm. And giving them some and perspective. Them pers- and actually one of the things that I've been often told working in careers work mm. is sometimes it's about giving them permission. Mm. So mm. it's actually okay for mm. you to do that. And mm. they go, is it? Yes, it is. Mm. And so, you know, sometimes you think, well, that's the easiest thing. Yeah. All I have to do is give this person permission. And so I think that's probably a really important role that you take as yeah. well. I'd like to think so. Mm. What would an exemplary model <laughs> of... HDR development look like if you had unlimited resources and people that were right on board with you what do you think that could look like that's such a hard question it is <laughs> if I had unlimited resources and I could do whatever I want mm. I think that you know it's almost like you know a, a genie coming out of the lamp like the the first wish I would have would be to it would be around sort of the time frame of a PhD I mean, I know a lot of the things that I often think about in terms of, you know, how we could improve the system are also deep systemic constraints. And they're not about, you know, the university's constraints. Mm. They're also about sort of like the funding available for higher education. And, you know, then it becomes a larger sociological question for me about, you know, what value we place as a society on higher education and the types of funding that's available to support, you know, a new generation of like critical thinkers. Um, And that's, you know, essentially what the the goal of the university is, um, you know, historically and hopefully even today. So if I had unlimited resources, and or some capacity in that direction one of the first things and probably the most important things I would get people to think about would be to allow for a bit more time and space for any kind of research degree and I think about this in terms of my own experience when I was doing my PhD and this wasn't even that long ago let's say seven to ten years ago although there was you know significant pressure to finish on time the sense of timely completion didn't have that intensity of pressure as I think some of our current candidates are facing. And the kind of time and the research environment that we're in often creates a, a big paradox. You know, on the one hand, we want students to be really creative, but creativity needs time, right? Innovative ideas need the time to marinate, to, you know, to be put aside for a while, to come back to it with fresh perspectives. None of that can happen without time and without a sense that there's enough space for me to relax into it and to think my way through a particular research problem or a question. But then when you've got the external pressures of time imposed on you, you know, sometimes I ask my students who come to see me, like, what are the two or three main things that you're most worried about? And invariably, the first thing they say is time. And so... To keep my answers short, like I think if I had to say one thing that I could have if I had unlimited resources, that would be that would be the direction. To mm. try and think collectively as an institution, how can we manage our way through this sort of time pressure um, for ourselves as staff members, but also for our candidates with whom we want the best for them to be able to produce research theses and projects that's going to really make a difference in the world mm. and in the society that we live in. And, and you mentioned critical skills and that's one of the skills that's really being sought now. Yeah. And as we move into the, you know, fourth industrial revolution, yeah. uh, we're there uh, working where they talk about human plus machines. 
uh, it's really important that, that is, those higher-order thinking skills and creativity yep. are there. And exactly as you've described, creativity needs time and space. How do we actually allow the candidates to have that time and space while still knowing they have to meet the deadline? Yep, that's right. So, yes, it's a tricky one. You're classified as an academic. Do you feel like you're recognised as an academic within the university? And does that even matter? Hmm two parts of this question. I'd say that when I first started, and this comes back to a response that I gave a bit earlier about, you know, whether that was probably the first question you asked me, like, did I imagine myself Mm. to be in this role? I think when I first started at Macquarie five years ago, I wasn't really sure how to be an academic in this sort of alternative space. Most academics, you know, every academic I've known have been inside a faculty. And so you teach your own course or you teach inside your subject area and, you know, you research and in that area and you supervise in that area. So when I first started at Macquarie, I didn't, wasn't quite sure. But over the years, I've realised that there is a huge amount of creativity and it certainly has a lot to do with, you know, the, the kind of, you know, open, openness of leadership that, you know, our former boss, Professor Nick Mansfield, allowed. And that, that gave me a lot of room to grow as an academic and to think about what it might mean to be an academic in an environment where it's possible to be a non-faculty academic. I suppose I I do feel recognised as an academic and a lot of that has to do with, you know, making it known to other people and making myself visible and making myself visible not just to staff members across campus but also to candidates who are, you know, understandably worried about the job market situation, that there are many different ways of being an an academic and and I'm an example. Mm. And I think I've started to see myself more and more as someone who, you know, just owns this academic role, no matter how strange and unusual it might feel or look like to somebody else, and tell people about how much autonomy I have in this <laughs> role and, and how I've grown in very different ways. And, you know, like I am an HDR learning advisor. That doesn't mean that I can't also be a sociologist and make those two things work, even if, you know, physically and organisationally I might look a little, little bit different. So, yeah, it matters that I think about myself as an academic, but it also matters that I think quite broadly about the different ways of being an academic. And I guess the thing is you've you've got that open mindset mm. you've talked about is that you can stop and think, well, these are the things that I really love mm. in my job and I get to do those. And so actually this is the right space for me yeah. for now. Yeah. And that really fits you rather than thinking, well, I need to be this other thing because yeah. that's what one should do. Yeah, so you're that's really, right. You're really saying, no, actually, this yeah. is who I am. And within that space, you've been, you've had that autonomy, as you mentioned, to actually really be creative and come up with different ways of doing things and, yeah. and also managing to still do your research, mm-hmm. which leads me to my next question, okay. because you went off to the UK for six months. That's right, last um, year. Yeah. And so that was where you got to do some research. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk about that experience and how that has impacted you upon your return? Mm. Yeah, so I was um, very lucky to have applied and have been successful in my application for Macquarie's Outside Studies Program. Um, so is it called Outside or Overseas? Oh, I might yeah. be wrong. But, <laughs> but it's the OSP. Yeah, that's right. Everyone knows it as the OSP. So I was lucky to be awarded that um, for the first half of 2018 and also lucky to have been invited to the University of York in the UK and in their sociology department uh, where I know a couple of people to be a visiting scholar so and it sort of all sort of tied in really nicely in terms of the timeline. 
I had an amazing time when I was in York, other than the weather for UK. I don't know how people survive in that country. But, uh, you know, other than weather, weather notwithstanding, I had a great time in the department. I was really well looked after. I was heavily involved in some of their key research projects around medical sociology and learned a lot in terms of, you know, different methods of, for example, interviewing people, different methods of doing the sorts of research that I was interested in doing in the kind of, you know, in the interdisciplinary space of medical sociology so I was really uh, you know sort of really learning I did a lot of learning when I was away I did a lot of writing as well and I had a good amount of time just to do my research but I also you know was invited to speak at a few conferences like across across York and in fact one of the things that you know people asked me when I was in UK and my British colleagues was how do I manage this sort of double role of being a researcher, but also not being inside a faculty. Mm. And I think I, it occurred to me, and it didn't occur to me until I was asked that question more than a, you know two times, that people were quite interested in what Australia was doing with the alternative you know, academic kind of careers. And I hadn't realised, because I hadn't been outside of Australia for such an extended period of, t- period of time, I hadn't realised that actually we might have been, we might be leading the way in this regard. Um, and certainly like in, you know, in York, like this was an unfamiliar thing, having an academic position that was not inside faculty, but that also allowed me to do the sorts of research that I, I love doing. So then I realised that I was at every sort of, you know, symposium or seminar that I was speaking at, even though it was about my research, I often sort of also talked about how doing interdisciplinary research also allowed me to, or informed my my teaching in an interdisciplinary advising role, which is what I'm doing now. Like, you know, I see a lot of students who will not be from sociology and I, you know, more or less am situated in the Faculty of Human Sciences when I'm here. And I see students from cognitive science, from psychology, from linguistics, education. It's a huge range. And I've suddenly learned to look at very different kinds of research projects and go, oh, here's a link. Like, oh, you know, like you might like to talk to this person who is also interested in language and education, but is looking at it from, you know, a neuroscientific perspective. And so I, it occurred to me that, and precisely because I'm not situated inside a conventional department, I'm actually able to be, if you like, the bridge that connects people. And in this research space, it's sort of a very vibrant space mm-hmm. where I actually get to know what's happening across campus and the diverse types of research that gets done. So when I was in York, I was surprised that I was actually talking about my job (laughs) at Macquarie to people in York who were largely an audience of like, you know, sociologists, but they were also interested in what was happening in a higher education space. So I gained a lot, like not just in my research, but also in finding myself in situations where I'm talking about my professional academic identity in a new way. It's great to hear. I hope that answers your question. It does. (laughs) And I guess that I really like that idea of being a bridge because I do think that's the case with roles like yours that mm. are across disciplines mm-hmm. because we need more of that. We need more interdisciplinary research and, you know, mm. you as a connector mm. and hopefully others are doing that as well, libraries, yeah. you know, other yeah, that's right. parts of the yeah. university. So what suggestions or tips would you give to someone who is considering an HDR program? I was just talking to a friend of mine who is thinking about, (laughs) you know, applying for a PhD or an HDR program. I think two things. The first is, you know, the, the subject area. I would say to someone who is asking me for advice that it needs to be a topic that you love. And I know we don't, love is not a word that we use, you know, often or lightly, at least in an academic context. But I think more and more it's important. And I often think about the phrase, 
for the love of learning. And I think that's the number one thing. Like, even though, you know, there are moments where I look at my research and I'm like, I'm so sick of this topic. But by and large, I'm not. Like, you know, it's only because the writing is a bit slow on certain days and I, you know, can't get my ideas across on paper that I feel that way. But by and large, like, you know, I really am invested in this topic, like emotionally, intellectually. And I think that would be one of the first things I say to someone, you know, is this a question or a problem or a topic that matters to you on a most personal level. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, your life, but it needs to be something that you can see yourself pursuing for the next two, three, five years. And if you do an Emirates program at Macquarie, that's, you know, probably the trajectory. You do a two-year, you know, program, and then you might continue with a three-year. So you're really looking at a five-year you know, stretch, and that's a long time to be going on about one, one subject. The second thing... I would, you know, sort of recommend is around supervision. And that's a hard one, I think. I, I was really lucky because I had already built a good rapport with my PhD supervisor while I was doing honours. So I had a, you know, sort of trial and error run of a, of a one-year sort of project with her. Um, and we worked out that we worked really well together. And so when she, you know, offered me a scholarship for the PhD, it was almost like I didn't really need to think twice. So if a student finds themselves in a position like that where they've had a sort of a good rapport with a let's say an MRS supervisor and there's the opportunity to do a PhD I think that's sort of a good deal you know for someone who's coming into an HDR program sort of without any idea of like who a supervisor might be one of the first things and actually it's a very simple thing that I suggest suggested to my friend just recently is to just look up you know academic profiles biographies you know that sort of every website and every university or faculty website will have profiles of their academics and and or their like you know active supervisors and I would just sort of make a little short list and actually just reach out you know there'll be email addresses and you know phone numbers I would just reach out and call and get in touch with a potential supervisor and, and make sort of the effort of like, oh, you know, would you like to have coffee with me? I'm interested in this subject. I know you do research in this area. I'd love to have a chat. And that sort of initial connection will actually allow you to see, you know, whether you're a right fit. And I think, you know, if, where possible, like being able to do that would also give you an idea of like right fit in terms of personality, but also right fit in terms of like research interests. Because those two things are never really separated. In reality, you know, you might share very similar intellectual interests. But if you can't work together as, you know, kind of interpersonally, then we already have a problem. And it could be the other way around as well. You might work really well together, but somebody has no expertise or specialization in your subject area and might not be able to co comment on, you know, the, the content content of that and that wouldn't work as well. So I think where possible being able to find, you know, the, the, the right supervisor for you and and having a love of your subject. Those are the two things that I would focus on. And that is excellent advice. <laughs> Thank you, Florence. That's okay. It's always a pleasure speaking to you and I'm sure we could continue, but yeah. we'll better stop there. So thanks. Thanks again. for having me on your show, Sally. Thank you.